Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Bruce and Beeler will join us to discuss North on the Wing. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the epic migration of songbirds across the country heralds the dawning of springtime throughout the U.S. heartland. And in the new book, North on the Wing, ornithologist Bruce M. Beeler describes his solo four-month trek to track songbird migration and the northward progress of spring through America. Dr. Beeler is an ornithologist, naturalist, conservationist, author, and lecturer. He's a research associate in the Division of Birds at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. He is uh, best known for co-leading a survey of biological diversity in the Foya Mountains of Papua New Guinea in 2005. He's the author of the new book, North on the Wing, Travels with the Songbird Migration of Spring. And Dr. Beeler, we want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Charles, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a, a fascinating book you've written here, North on the Wing, Travels with the uh, Songbird Migration of Spring. Uh, and when you talk about this fascinating journey you took tracking songbird migration, why did you decide to, to take this trip and write a book about it? Well, it's pretty straightforward. I've been in love with birds for a long time, and for virtually all of my professional career, 35-plus years working uh, out of offices in Washington, D.C., I would get to see and experience the wonders of spring for maybe a maximum two or three days every year. That was a crime. It was a pity. You know, I'd go out with my buddies one weekend in mid-May, and we'd go chase warblers and take in just the beauties of spring, and that was it. It was gone for another 12 months. And when I retired from those uh, professional duties, I said, if there's something, if there's one thing that I would love to do is to get a better chunk of spring, really experience as much as spring as possible in a single year. So this really, what, uh, aside from the songbirds and then aside from the fantastic mysteries of songbird migration, what I really wanted to do was immerse myself in one year of as much spring as possible. And I was able to do that. I essentially spent 100 days with spring. There was certainly a lot of planning to the trip because aside from seeing the birds and experiencing the spring, I wanted to find out as much as possible being of an inquisitive mind about what people are doing to learn more about spring migration, what you know, universities and researchers are doing on that front, and also what conservationists and conservation institutions are doing to protect and conserve spring migration. So I reached out to lots of different people and, you know, set up lots of uh, get-togethers, meetings in the field, uh, visits to field sites. And so I wove those into my travels, my back, uh, back road travels as I traveled from southeast Texas up the Mississippi up into uh, central Canada. So it really was a mix of birds, spring, and people. The, the title of the book has a certain meaning, North on the Wing. Where did the title come from? Oh, that's a good question. 
1947, Edwin Waiteel, a naturalist, a famous East Coast naturalist, and his wife uh, took a trip following spring. And they were the first to do this. So they, they published a book called North with the Spring, and that was published in 1951 and won Teal, a Pulitzer Prize. It's a marvelous book. My mother, in the early 60s, my mother read bits of that book to me at night, uh, put me to sleep. And I never forgot that book, and I reread it over the years. And uh, when retirement came, retirement time came, I said, that would be a wonderful thing to do, would be to knock off the teal idea, go back, redo that, and, and also sort of check out, see how things have changed a bit. Did you notice a lot of change since then? A lot of change, yes. Uh, it's a completely different world, as you'd expect. You know, there was not a single interstate when he did it. He drove basically back roads or the so-called highways, the, which, of course, all had red lights and stops. They went through the middle of every little town in the south. So in that way, it was a different world. All the technology, you know, he was, he was a high-tech guy at the time. He had a telephoto lens and a camera, but, of course, they weren't digital. He didn't have an iPhone. He didn't have a GPS. So I was able to take with me, you know, GoPros and, all, and GPSs and iPhones and all sorts of things like that. Uh, on the, and that sort of helped me do my work, of course. It helped me communicate. I was able to send out a blog, color images of my travels uh, through the American Bird Conservancy once a week. Well, of course, he wasn't able to do that. Uh, on, the, on the sort of downside, uh, what I saw, he reported in his book these giant waves of warblers moving up the Appalachians. Well, those warbler waves are basically not there anymore. Yes, the warblers are migrating, but the numbers are down. In fact, the work that Sid Gautreaux and his team have done uh, out of Clemson University using weather radar to track the volume of bird migration across the Gulf of Mexico has demonstrated that over the last 35, 40 years, the volume of migration across the Gulf has declined by as much as 50%. That's of the songbirds. And the, 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 uh, basically that what says, apparently, the numbers of songbirds returning from the tropics in the spring is down by about half. And that's, that's, that's darn worrisome. Is it uh, changes to the environment, changes to, to their, their habitats? What's, what's going on? Probably lots of different things. So, you know, for a migratory bird, there are three critical places in their life. Their breeding habitat up in the north, their stopover sites in the middle, and their long wintering home down usually in the south. It's either in the southern U.S. or in Mexico or Central or South America. There have been changes to all three of those habitats, especially in the middle, in, an, in our heartland, but right in the U.S., in the middle of the U.S. Lots and lots of changes there. And there, of course, have been lots and lots of changes in the, tr in the tropical forest zones of the Caribbean and Central and South America. I think fewer, probably fewer changes, but still substantial changes up in the boreal forests of Canada, where lots of those boreal forests have been logged. In addition, with the growth of cities and the growth of all sorts of human high-tech gear, we have millions and millions of cell towers that didn't exist when Teal did his trip, and probably more radio and TV antennas. Those are lighted at night and lighted buildings. 
all of those things, as well as wind towers, wind turbines, um, all of those pose threats to migrating songbirds at night and kill millions and millions of those. Yeah. Finally, there's the issue, believe it or not, of uh, outdoor cats. These are feral or just outdoor roaming cats that kill on the order of one billion birds a year. So there are lots of things that are threatening the, the songbird migration system, and I've, I've, I've listed a few of them. Do any of these interfere with the ability of the songbirds themselves to orient themselves or to find where they're going? Probably, yes. So the whole uh, orientation and navigation is a fantastic story in itself. We should talk a little bit about that. Um, but along the way, um, certainly, you know, where we have these large urban sprawl, where we have sort of the megalopolis, the whole East Coast, where you have lights, heavy, heavily lit up areas, those lit up areas draw in birds. The birds that are normally following a compass course, when they see highly lit areas at night, tend to get drawn in. And that's been demonstrated in the last couple of years by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology that looked at the impact of the uh, ground zero in New York City when they shine those terrifically bright lights up into the sky. When they do that, that draws in. They do that, of course, uh, in September when the birds are migrating south. It's right during the migration season. And they have shown that when those lights are shining, tens of thousands of birds are drawn into those lights like moths to a flame. And many of those birds, not only they're disoriented, and some of them come to grief. So, yes, there are all sorts of threats like that. What is it then that people can do if they're interested in the, the migration of birds? And So, for your listeners, what can they do? That's a good question. Um, I think what we always try to do is start at home, make sure that green spaces near your home are protected. Look out for them because you're the person that lives near them. They could be a county park or a state park or even a, a, some local park. Make sure that your local or state government is caring for those and protecting those. Of course, you need to write your congressman and senator about uh, national areas that need protection. The more green space we provide for migratory birds, of course, the better off they're going to be. Also, we need to press uh, state and uh, national uh, legislatures to pass laws to control lights and control the placement of the wind turbines. Many of these wind turbines are placed on fantastic ridges, Appalachian ridges and up other high points, which are, of course, natural pathways for eagles and hawks and night nightly migrating birds, and as well as bats. So we need to be more cautious about where we place those wind-generating uh, stations. And the lighted buildings, not only just the, the towers, but the lights on the buildings at night, which are just basically a vanity thing. They don't really serve any purpose except to light up the building. Those, again, they just light up those windows and create a threat to birds as well. So those things, too. If you have a cat at home, you need to keep it inside. It's better for the cat. And it's also better for birds and mammals. I said that cats kill more than a billion birds a year. They kill on the order of two billion, two billion mammals. So the chipmunks and little red squirrels and voles and moles, billions are killed by cats every year just because people let them roam wild. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? This was an amazing uh, journey. You, you basically saw a great swath of the country here. What, what was the thing that really struck you the most? Were there were there any uh, points where you said, "Wow, this is this is really amazing"? 
Yes. So the trip I took, you know, I grew up on the East Coast. I was born in Baltimore and spent most of my professional career based in the D.C. area. I really didn't know where the area I I transected. So, you know, I I started down near Corpus Christi in southeastern Texas at the Mad Island Reserve right on the coast. I started there because that's where many of the songbirds, when they cross the Gulf of Mexico, actually make first landfall in the U.S. in eastern Texas. So I basically, and I was down there at a Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center bird banding station. So I was watching them handle these birds as they came across the Gulf. They were misnetting them. So I went from East Texas, which I didn't know well, and then up through the Mississippi, another part of the world I didn't know well, and up into central Ontario, which I had never visited before. So what I saw was there's just so, it's so much more than you expect. You know, you look at a map of the U.S., yeah, hey, U.S., that's pretty big. But when you get out there and you just travel the back roads, I did not travel the highways. I stayed on the two-lane blacktop back roads, and I was looking for those nooks and crannies, the, the swamps and the wetlands and the little state parks and local parks. There is so much out there, and it's so fantastic. There's so much beautiful rural land. And also many of the tiny towns that I visited, gorgeous little towns, beautiful situated on the Mississippi or some tributary of the Mississippi. These are just beautiful, beautiful places. These are places that are, of course, forgotten in many cases by Washington, D.C. and the politics there. But when you go and visit these places, the people are fantastic. They're incredibly gracious. They're wonderful hosts. And they're very proud of their wet spots and their green spots, and they want to share them with you. And it's just a great experience to do this. So what I would say to Everybody out there is, there's nothing like get in the car, forget about the, forget about the plane, forget about the airport, get in the car, get out a map or get out a GPS and go to these places you haven't been. It is really, really fantastic. So after having completed the journey, do you feel like you've gotten a better sense of the country or do you feel like this is only just the beginning? There's, there's still so much left to see. Well, certainly I want to do it again. And uh, my next big trip will focus on autumn which is something that uh, Edwin Way Teal did as well. So this is nothing, nothing uh, ingenious or particularly thoughtful. I'm just knocking off Edwin Way Teal. But he had a great idea, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. There, is, there, you know, there are just so many opportunities to experience the wonder of nature. And this, this autumn trip I plan to take will focus on wildlife spectacles where you get these large concentrations of wildlife. For instance, down on the coast of Texas, uh, just in Corpus Christi, there's a little state park called Hazel Baysmore State Park. And something on the order of 500,000 raptors, hawks, eagles, vultures, and others, kites, migrate over Hazel Baysmore in the month of September. So on a particular day, you might see 100,000 broadwing hawks in a single day. Uh, there are lots and lots of situations. That's just one example of dozens that I'm uh, pulling together in my plan. And things like that. Off the coast of uh, Cape Cod, you could be out on a boat and see 40 or 50 humpback whales in a single day, bubble feeding coming up, feeding on tiny fish. Um, there are things like this all across the country. Uh, this is not science. This is natural history, but it is so much part of our DNA. It's, we all should be, you know, we re- all should experience more of this. Get away from the iPhone. Get away from the flat screen TV. Get away from your uh, desktop computer and get out there in the spring and fall and winter and summer <laughs> and, and, and let nature uh, entertain you.
That's certainly good advice, especially in our technologically driven world these days. You know, you met all these people on your journeys. Do you get the sense that our appreciation for, for natural history has changed since uh, Teal did his journeys or have a sort of different appreciation now? Well, of course, there are probably twice as many people in our country now, but probably percentage-wise, many, many fewer are are taking advantage of what's out there for free to entertain us, which is nature. So if you think about it, Teal start with T, it was Teal, Hal Borland, Rachel Carson, Roger Torrey Peterson, a number of naturalists opened our eyes to nature in North America in the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, some of it was a call to arms because of the threats of DDT, others just a call to the beauty that people should not miss the wonders of, of this world. And they created, of course, what they they announced led to Earth Day in 1970 and, and, the, and the environmental movement with the passage of the Clean Water Bill and Clean Air Act. That was sort of, so probably mid-70s to 1980 was a peak of appreciation of the outdoors and nature. And then things started to sag a bit, and I think we're probably in a bit of a trough right now. There, there may be as many people out appreciating it, appreciating it, but not percentage-wise. So too many people, especially young people, of course, have got their eyes glued on the screen of their smartphone and not looking up or not looking down, just looking at that screen, and I think that's a shame. I'm curious maybe to close. Uh, we're running a little out of time. Uh, what, you have some final words on uh, your, your book here, North on the Wing. Well, uh, it's just a start. Read the book. Get some ideas about weekends or week-long trips or even month-long trips. This is what you can do with your family your, and your kids, or you can do it on your own if you can get away. Believe me, it is definitely worth it. You create memories for a lifetime, and you really change the way you see the world. The new book is titled North on the Wing, Travels with the Songbird Migration of Spring, and the author, uh, Dr. Bruce Beeler. And uh, Dr. Beeler, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Charles, thank you so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.